Let me invite you to turn uh, with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings and to chapter 16, where we'll pick up reading in verse 29 and continue down to chapter 17, verse 1. So 1 Kings 16, 29 through 17, 1. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heel, the Bethelite, built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah, the Tishbite, who is of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Father, speak to us now from this passage and in the weeks ahead as we consider the life of Elijah together. Minister to us by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As the Lord wills, uh, we are going to spend some Wednesday nights looking at the life and ministry of the great prophet Elijah, with one sermon at the end on his successors, Elisha and John the Baptist. Lord willing, we'll get to that one as well. Most of our time is going to be spent in the books of Kings, and we begin tonight with this intro in the final six verses of chapter 16 to the infamous king Ahab. To understand Elijah, it's really important to understand King Ahab because Ahab is Elijah's chief human antagonist. And the reason, of course, that Ahab is Elijah's chief antagonist is because Ahab is, at this period in Israel's history, the chief human antagonist of God, before whom Elijah stands. And so we begin our look at Elijah, actually by not beginning with Elijah, but by beginning with Ahab in these final verses of chapter 16, with this little introduction to Ahab, the son of Omri. And if you're keeping track of headings tonight, there will be three of them, and that's the first one, Ahab, the son of Omri. And let's note some things about him. First, concerning Ahab, we note that he is king over 
Israel, verse 29. Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And he became king, we're told, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. You may recall that um, because of the foolishness of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, uh, the nation of God's people divided earlier in this book of 1 Kings, and ten of the tribes separated and became a separate nation and kept the name Israel, and Judah and Benjamin stayed together and were called Judah. So now the people of God are divided into two nations, Israel and Judah, and Ahab is king over those ten tribes that broke away. Ahab is king over Israel, and thus his capital, verse 29, is in Samaria. So Ahab, king over Israel. Next, notice that Ahab is the son of Omri, the son of Omri. Now, Omri had been Israel's military commander when the king at that time was assassinated. And it was Omri whom the people appointed as their new king. It was Omri who also then led the charge against the assassin. And you can read the details of that in this same chapter beginning up in verse 8. And if you continue reading about Omri here in First uh, Kings 16, you will come to this statement in verse 25 concerning Ahab's father. Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. So Omri, Ahab's father, was a patently bad king, a patently wicked Man, Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. And yet, bad as Omri was, verse 25, bad as the father was, the son, verse 30, was even worse. Omri, verse 25, did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. But then Ahab, who came after Omri, verse 30, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Which includes his father, who up until that point had been the worst of them all. So, That's the third thing to note here regarding Ahab, the son of Omri, namely that Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him, even more than his exceedingly wicked father. And how did he do evil? Well, in the next three verses, verses 31 through 33, we discover that Ahab was a heinous violator of the first two commandments. The first two of the Ten Commandments, Ahab was a gross violator of. Notice it with me. Ahab walked, we're told in verse 31, in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had been a prior king of the ten tribes. 
Ahab walked in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And what were the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat? Well, Jeroboam, you might remember this, it's in chapter 12. Jeroboam erected golden calves and said to the people, Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. And Jeroboam called Israel to worship not only in this wrong way, but he also called them to worship in the wrong place. He set up worship in Bethel and in Dan instead of encouraging the people to go to Jerusalem and to the temple. And not only did he call Israel to worship in the wrong way and also in the wrong place, but thirdly, under the ministry of the wrong priests. He made priests who were not of the sons of Levi. And all of this, if you look at chapter 12, you will realize that all of this was for the sake of expediency and achieving Jeroboam's own personal ends. Chapter 12, verse 26 and following, Jeroboam said in his heart, Jeroboam is the king, the first king of the new nation of the ten tribes that have split away. And he's thinking to himself, what am I going to do here? How am I going to lead the people? Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places and made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. So the kingdom has split in two, and the people have been accustomed to going up and worshiping in Jerusalem. And now Jeroboam says to himself, well, Jerusalem's in Judah, and we're our own nation now, and if I want them to be loyal to me and not to the sons of David, then I had better set up worship in our own territory. And so he calls the people to worship in the wrong place. He calls them with these golden calves to worship in the wrong way, and he appoints the wrong men as priests as well. And all of it, I say, all of it we see in chapter 12 was for the sake of expedience and achieving his own personal selfish ends. And all of it, back to what I said earlier about the Ten Commandments, all of this was a wild breach of the second commandment. You remember the second commandment? The second commandment forbids worshiping God by means of any likeness, whether that be a golden calf or some other sort of statue or an icon or a modern picture or painting. The second commandment forbids the worship of God by any likeness, and it even forbids, read it carefully, sometime, Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, the commandment even forbids making likenesses as representations of God. It's not simply to say that we shouldn't 
worship them. We shouldn't even have them or make them. And we also learn from the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Shorter Shorter Catechism that Christians have long understood that the principle of this second commandment prohibits us not only worshiping God by means of any likeness, but worshiping God in any wrong ways, in any false ways. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it like this, the second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. And so not only were Jeroboam's calves a gross violation of the second commandment, but so were his priests because they weren't appointed in God's word. And so were his alternative worship sites because they weren't appointed in God's word either. And Ahab, back to Ahab now, Ahab, verse 29, walked in these same sins. Ahab promoted this same abominable worship. And thus, like Jeroboam, Ahab caused Israel to sin thereby. Ahab was a gross violator of the second commandment. And though we may not be tempted to breach the commandment in the same ways as Ahab did, both he and Jeroboam before him are reminders to us that God hates false worship. False worship, worship that is not according to the appointment of his word, is a stench in God's nostrils. It's part of the provocation of the Lord that Ahab committed in verse 33 when we're told he did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Part of it was his leading the people in false worship of the Lord. And if God hates false worship, and if its stench in his nostril, we dare not introduce it ourselves. We dare not introduce man's wisdom into the worship of God and say, well, I think this would be a good idea, and maybe we should try that. Andrew Sheffield, some of you remember him. Andrew Sheffield showed us years ago that when we come together for worship, God has given us to read the scriptures, to pray, to sing, to preach, to give, to partake of the Lord's Supper, and as occasion arises, to baptize. And to quote Paul in another context, with these we shall be content. With these we shall be glad even, because these are the things that God wants in worship. These are the things that God wants. And Ahab's walking in the sins of Jeroboam and God's being provoked by it, by this false worship, remind us that that is what matters, what God wants when we worship him. What God wants is what counts. Not what is expedient or what will achieve our desires, but what will satisfy God's desires. So then Ahab, verse 31, was a gross violator of the second 
commandment and a provoker of God because of it. But he was also a provoker of God because he was a gross violator of the first commandment as well. The first commandment is, of course, you shall have no other gods before me. And yet in verses 31 and following, we're told of Ahab that it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Gross violations now of the first commandment by the worship of something other than the one true God. And notice here that just as God had warned his people would happen, Ahab became attached to a foreign god, Baal, by means of a foreign wife. Didn't God say that would happen in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 4, when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Jergeshites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. And so with Ahab it proved to be. Now Ahab had other issues as we have just seen in the consideration of his false worship. He had other issues that didn't stem from his marriage to Jezebel. Had he been what he ought to have been, in fact, he wouldn't have been married to Jezebel in the first place. But once he was married to her, things got worse in his life spiritually, didn't they? And here we just have a reminder of the power that an ungodly spouse can have. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. Take warning, young people. So then Ahab was heinously in breach of the first two of the Ten Commandments. And we are told in summary that thus Ahab, verse 33, did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. I hope we take warning from Ahab's life. And I hope we will understand Elijah just a little bit better for having considered his antagonist.
But before we get to Elijah in chapter 17, there's this little insertion in the final verse of chapter 16 about a man called Heel, the Bethelite. In his days, in Ahab's days, Heel, the Bethelite, built Jericho. He laid its foundation with the loss, foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Sagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. And while I don't want to dwell here on this particular man and these events, I will tell you that there is a fabulous sermon on this verse preached by a man who was called John Macduff, And it's contained in a book of his sermons called Sunsets on the Hebrew Mountains, uh, which are sermons about um, the end of people's lives in the scriptures. Sunsets on the Hebrew Mountains. And he has a sermon on the end of these two people's lives, Abiram and Segub is the name of the sermon. It's the book um, Sunsets on the Hebrew Mountains. You can get it at Amazon. Bottom of the Hill Publishing has a nice edition of it. It would be well worth your time and money. But we move on now to our second heading. First, we thought about Ahab, the son of Omri. And now second, we think about Elijah, the Tishbite. Elijah, the Tishbite. R.G. Lee, in a famous sermon called Payday Someday, said, I am so glad that I live in a universe where when the devil has his Ahab, God has his Elijah. I'm so glad I live in a universe where when the devil has his Ahab, God has his Elijah. Now that sermon was preached from over in chapter 21, or that that portion of that sermon was preached from over in chapter 21. But in, in preaching that portion of the sermon and in saying what he said, when the devil has his Elijah, or his Ahab, God has his Elijah, Lee helped me to see something about Elijah's ministry, not only in chapter 21, but in general. Namely, that a significant part of God's plan for this man, Elijah, whose ministry and life we will consider over the next weeks, Lord willing, a significant part of God's plan for Elijah is for Elijah to stand up to Ahab. Now, the preacher R.G. Lee observes it in chapter 21 in the matter of Elijah standing up to Ahab concerning Naboth's vineyard. And we see the same theme in chapter 18 as Elijah stands up to Ahab at Mount Carmel. And tonight we have read it in chapter 17, verse 1, as Elijah stands up to Ahab here. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who is of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Because Ahab is who he is and is doing what he is doing, God sends Elijah. God has his Elijah, to use Lee's words, and he sends him to stand up to this wicked king. A significant part of God's plan for Elijah is for Elijah to stand up to the evil king Ahab. And 
May we then, as we consider Elijah, say with R.G. Lee, I am so glad I live in a universe where when the devil has his Ahab, God has his Elijah. And of course, Lee, in saying that, is not just talking about Ahab and Elijah only, but he's talking about living in a universe and living under a God who always has his Elijahs, whom he can use to stand up to the devil and his servants. God had Moses to stand up to Pharaoh. God had David to stand up to Goliath. God had Esther to stand up to the schemes of Haman. God had William Carey to stand up to the idols of India. God, some of you uh, read this in the newsletter from Colin and Diane Lord in Papua New Guinea. God had a man named Des Oatridge to stand up against the schemes of the devil as they were brought down upon the Binamarian people in Papua New Guinea. God might have you to stand up for him and to the devil somehow, some way. And of course, most of all, God had and has Jesus his own son, about whom it is written in the chapter that we read at the beginning of the service, Hebrews 2, that since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. I'm so glad with Robert G. Lee that when God has his, or when the devil has his Ahab, God has his Elijah. And I'm so glad that God has his Jesus to defeat the devil for us. Now we're considering Elijah the Tishbite, and as we follow Elijah along in the coming weeks, we're going to find him, yes, Boldly proclaiming God's word, standing strong. But we're also going to see him in the depths of despair. And it occurs to me that that's what the life of a preacher can be like, and that's what the life of any servant of God can be like. Sometimes we're standing on the mountain bold for the Lord, and other times we are in the valley weeping. Sometimes we're on Mount Carmel with Elijah, and sometimes we're with Elijah under the juniper tree. Not to say that our despair is right, but to say that it's real. And we will see the Lord meet Elijah in his doldrums. And we will see the Lord use Elijah beyond them. We're also going to see God working in Elijah's life Yes, with fire from heaven and other miracles. But we're also going to see him working in Elijah's life in a sound of a gentle blowing or a still small voice as the King James translates it. And this too is something of a paradigm, I think. Sometimes the word of the Lord booms 
when it comes to us. And sometimes, to borrow from how some other translations render the words about a still small voice, sometimes God's word comes to us in a whisper. Sometimes we need the booming voice of God. We need the fire from heaven, as it were. And sometimes we need and must listen carefully for the whisper, the still, small voice. And then let me say this, and it will bring us to our third and final heading. Some time ago, my friend, Nathaniel Pringle, some of you have met Nathaniel. Some time ago, Nathaniel taught me that the theme of the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, is that God always keeps his word. That God's word always comes to pass. And I'm going to now use what Nathaniel taught me there and make it into a third point, namely the certainty of God's word. So we've thought about Ahab, the son of Omri. We've thought about Elijah, the Tishbite. And now we think about the certainty of God's word. And I'm getting this point from my friend Nathaniel, who taught me the theme of the book of Kings is that God always keeps his word, that God's word always comes to pass. And with that information in tow, I just want to walk you through some quotations. I I did some research on Bible Gateway looking for this theme in 1st and 2nd Kings and I want to walk you through some quotations. You can turn with me or you can listen along. 1st Kings 13:5 The altar also was split apart and the ashes were poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Chapter 13, verse 26, Now when the prophet who brought him back from the way heard it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the command of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke to him. Chapter 14, verse 18, All Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through his servant Ahijah the prophet. Chapter 15, verse 29. It came about as soon as he was king, he struck down all the household of Jeroboam. He did not leave to Jeroboam any persons alive until he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. Chapter 16, verse 12. Thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Baasha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Baasha through Jehu the prophet. Chapter 16, verse 34. We read earlier, In his days, Heel the Bethelite built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up his gates with the loss of his, loss of his youngest son, Sagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. And Macduff, in that sermon I told you about, preaches powerfully on this truth that God always keeps his word, that God's word 
always comes to pass. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 44. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 16. So the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. Then a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. Chapter 14, verse 25. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who is of Gath-Hefer. Chapter 23, verse 16. Now when Josiah turned, he saw the graves that were there on the mountain, and he sent and took the bones from the graves and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these things. Chapter 24, verse 2. The Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans, bands of Arameans, bands of Moabites, and bands of Ammonites. So he sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord which he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. Many different prophets all speaking the word of the Lord and things coming to pass again and again and again just as God said. And the passages I just read you don't include the passages connected with the life and ministry of Elijah that, Lord willing, we will see in the weeks ahead. But the same theme is there in Elijah's life. In fact, as I was reading portions of Kings in preparation for this series, Nathaniel's words to me were coming alive on the pages, the theme of the book of Kings is that God always keeps His Word, that God's Word always comes to pass. That just came alive before me and was so obvious as I began to read Elijah's life. Two examples I fetched up, again, just going back and looking on Bible Gateway to find these passages about according to the Word of the Lord. Two passages from Elijah's life that I'll give you tonight, and Lord willing, we'll come to them in the days ahead. Chapter 17, 1 Kings 17, 8 through 16. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, came to Elijah, that is, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me, and afterward you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. 
So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. And then over in chapter 22, verses 34 through 38, Ahab is in battle and we read that now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and take me out of the fight for I am severely wounded. The battle raged that day and the king was propped up in his chariot in front of the Arameans and died at evening and the blood from the wound ran into the bottom of the chariot. Then a cry passed throughout the army close to sunset saying, every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king, Ahab that is, the king died and was brought to Samaria and they buried the king in Samaria. They washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria and the dogs licked up his blood. Now the harlots bathed themselves there according to the word of the Lord which he spoke. And the word that he had spoken was spoken over in chapter 21, verse 19, by Elijah. Thus says the Lord, have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him saying, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. The theme of the book of Kings is that God always keeps His Word, that God's Word always comes to pass. And that reality just permeates the life and the ministry of Elijah. And I urge you to believe it. To believe that God always keeps His Word, that God's Word always comes to pass. I was reading recently in James P. Boyce's Abstract of Systematic Theology, And in a section on God's faithfulness, Boyce said something that was helpful and that instructed me. Quote, God's faithfulness demands equally the performance of his threatenings as of his promises. This faithfulness is the ground of both hope and of fear. In the scriptures, it is more frequently presented as a reason for hope and trust, but it is also the foundation of belief in future judgment and punishment. The faithful God has been true to his threatenings as well as his promises. End of quote. And using Boyce's instruction of me there, God showed me this reality of his faithfulness in the ministry of Elijah. God is faithful to his word, whether it is a threatening word, like the word to Ahab, the dogs will lick up your blood, or whether it's A word of promise, like the word to the widow in chapter 17, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain. Threatening words, promising words, if they are the word of the Lord, they will come to pass. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Believe the word of the Lord. 
believe it when God says, 1 Samuel chapter 2, those who honor me I will honor. And believe it when he says, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Believe it when God says in 2 Chronicles 16 that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His and live like you believe it. Believe it when you read in Malachi 3 to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Believe it. Believe it when we are told in Romans 8 that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Believe it when we're told in 1 Corinthians 6 that neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then believe it also as well in Acts chapter 3 when we're told repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. (laughs) Believe it when you hear the words of Jesus for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Believe the word of the Lord. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Things will always come to pass. You can take this to the bank. Things will always come to pass according to the word of the Lord.